we're working our way through the book of Psalms. And if you're new to Hope or you're just starting to get connected, this is part of our year of the Bible. Hope is a Bible reading church, and uh, we want to emphasize that more this year about uh, being a church that reads the Bible together, and we're kind of following things together. So there are Bible readings that happen each week that you can follow along either the New Testament, which is the story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and the new church, um, or the Old Testament, or both. We have people reading through all of those different parts together. And so we're, if you're in the Old Testament readings, about to the book of Psalms. I know the last couple of weeks weeks, John uh, has talked a little bit about the, the introduction to Psalms and what Psalms are, so I don't want to do too much of that, but if you're just sort of catching up, again, Psalms are right in the middle of the Bible. The word Psalm actually means song, and so the book of Psalms is a song book. There are 150 Psalms. Uh, one is called a Psalm. It comes from the book, uh, it comes from the, the Greek, originally Psalmoi, which actually means a song sung to a harp or music sung to a stringed instrument. So it really is a songbook. The majority of the psalms, we can tell, were written originally as songs. Some of them were poems that were then set to psalms. There are all sorts of different arguments about the different types of psalms, and there are, there are five books within the book of psalms. Some only recognize four. Some say there are six. A lot of scholars argue about the different kinds. Are there psalms of praise and psalms of lament? Depending upon whom you ask, there are all sorts of different ways to categorize the psalms. It doesn't really matter. They're all really good. And if those categories help you explore the psalms even more, or if your study Bible talks about those categories, that's really good. Most of the psalms are written by David, as in King David, um, David and Goliath, David and Bathsheba. Um, and David was a musician, and he also was a guy who didn't live this ultra-clean life. And so one of the great things about the Psalms is that we know they're written by somebody that, that we can relate to. He wasn't this holy saint person. He walked with God, and he struggled with God, and he was challenged by God. And most of the time, uh, his Psalms reflect a very real relationship. If you look in, if you have a good study Bible, there are usually a lot of notes about uh, the speculation about how and where this psalm was written or at what time in David's life it was written. But also pay attention that within the scripture itself, a lot of the headings or the titles that you see or the instructions about how or where the psalm is to be used, um, those are actually part of the scripture. So pay attention to which is the scripture and which are your study notes if you get into it. Why do we study the psalms? Well, one of the main reasons is that uh, the psalms are the largest body of work in the Bible that are exclusively to and about God rather than by or from God. And of course, we believe what scripture says, that all scripture is God-breathed, that, uh, that God has given us scripture. So in that sense, yes, the psalms are from God. But in terms of the language, the psalms are directed exclusively to and about God. And what's good about that is the psalms sort of validate the fact that God is accessible, that God hears us that God is personal enough to, uh, to, to yell at and get angry at sometimes, and that God hears us and knows us and wants us to be in relationship with him. One of the great things about the, the, the Psalms is that they give us response. They give us the words to, to respond to God. Uh, many of you have seen these little pocket Bibles. You get these sometimes handed out at different places, or you see them in hotels or whatnot. Most of the time, these little pocket Bibles, at least the English versions, contain the New Testament, again, the life, death, the resurrection of Jesus, and the new church, and then just the Psalms. Or maybe this one has the Psalms and Proverbs. And it's not because the Psalms or the Proverbs sum up the Old Testament, so it fits well in the little pocket version, 
but just because of what I'm saying, that the Psalms actually give language. They give us uh, an expression to what the good news of God is or the difficult news of God is. And so if someone were to just read this much, the hope is, and the idea of these little pocket Bibles, is that they um, read the good news of God and then they have 150 ways to respond to that. And I think that's a real rich thing for these little pocket these little pocket Bibles. Martin Luther, who's the father of the Protestant Reformation and after which the Lutheran Church was eventually named, Luther loved the Psalms. He lived uh, right around the 15th century, uh, 14th, 15th century, and he was very much uh, in love with the Psalms. Uh, scholars tell us, and he told us, that he had all the Psalms memorized. He knew all of the Psalms by heart, and he would say that he loves to have a Psalm on his lips, and even on his deathbed, Luther was reciting Psalms apparently. Here's just to give you an idea of what he thought of the Psalms in terms of this response or the way to, um, to be in interaction with God. Here's how Luther describes it. And he was a poet. He gets really into it. He really loved the Psalms. So Martin Luther writes, where does one find finer words of joy than in the Psalms of praise and thanksgiving? There you look into the hearts of all the saints as into fair and pleasant gardens. Yes, as into heaven itself. There you see what fine and pleasant flowers of the heart spring up from all sorts of fair and happy thoughts towards God because of his blessings. On the other hand, where do you find deeper, more sorrowful, more pitiful words of sadness than in the Psalms of lament? There again you look into the hearts of all the saints as into death, yes, as into hell itself. How gloomy and dark it is there with all kinds of troubled forebodings about the wrath of God. So too, when they speak of fear and hope, they use such words that no painter could depict for you fear or hope, and no Cicero or other orator so portray them. And that they speak these words to God and with God, this, I repeat, is the best thing of all. This gives the words double earnestness and life. Hence, says Luther, it is that the, it is that the Psalter is, all the book, is the book of all saints, and everyone, in whatever situation he may be, finds in that situation a psalm and words that fit the case, that suit as if they were put there for just one sake. One could not wish for anything better. So Luther realized that the psalms are sort of our script in many ways in our lives. Psalms have been part of Christian worship since the beginning of Christian worship. We read in the New Testament that the new church used psalms. In the book of Colossians, the apostle Paul is writing to the new church at Colossae, and he writes this, in just an instruction about worship. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Teach and admonish one another in all wisdom and with gratitude in your hearts. Sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to God. The vast majority of Christian churches on earth use the psalms, most of them, many of them in worship and in prayer. Many of the worship songs that we use um, at Hope City Branch and even in the traditional service at Hope West Des Moines, the hymns that maybe some of you grew up with or have been part of your tradition come directly from the psalms. A lot of people learn the psalms before they even know them. You've memorized psalms, likely, if you've been around for six months. You know psalms because you know the words of some of the worship songs that come directly from the psalms. There are some Christian traditions, smaller traditions, that only sing the psalms in worship because they feel that's the only appropriate way to sing. We don't get that from the Bible here. I hope we don't teach that necessarily. But you get the idea that all they would need in their Christian community, they feel, is to psalms. Again, because it's an expression of our faith that's right there out of Scripture. One of the reasons that psalms are so relevant is that they aren't time-bound. The same sort of feelings and responses that someone had 
thousands of years ago is still the response that we as people of God might have today or people that are exploring God. So at its surface, it's a great songbook, but God is kind of cooler than that. And he takes the Psalms and does something even more with it. The Psalms also point forward, point to what God will do in the future. Just like most of the rest of the Old Testament, there's a really clear setup for what God is going to do with his people in the New Testament. And David gets that. David was a good Jew. He knew God. He knew God's promises. He explored the scripture. He knew um, what the community was saying. He knew the prophecies of God. He had a relationship with God. He knew that God was pointing forward. And so in the Psalms, David uses a lot of words and a lot of um, emotion about the fact that salvation was coming. He uses words like redemption. He uses words like deliverance. He talks in many of the Psalms about a new light coming. He talks about in many places the fact that a good shepherd was coming. And if you know your New Testament, if you know Jesus, you know that Jesus called himself the good shepherd. You talked about that all last week with Psalm 23 is what John preached on. The good shepherd was coming. David knew that God was calling through the Psalms. And he also knew that God would be calling his people in a new way. And he just sets up that anticipation. And that's what we want to talk today about in Psalm 19. How does God call out to us? Think about it for a minute. Are you okay just knowing intellectually that God is there? Or do you encounter a God who's calling out to you specifically? Who through scripture and through your time living in God's creation, a God that calls out to you, that's pursuing you? Are you okay just saying, yep, God exists and God loves his people? Or do you know a God who's just relentlessly pursuing his children and saying, I'm here, I'm here, I want you, I'm after you because I want to be in relationship with you? That's where Psalm 19 goes. If you have your Bible still, go to Psalm 19. We're going to be in it the whole time. On the surface, Psalm 19 is, it's a praise psalm. One of those categories. Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out to all the earth. The words to the ends of the world. In the heavens he has pitched a tent for the sun. Which is like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion. Like a champion runner rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. It's a praise psalm, which many of the psalms are. And on the surface, praise psalms are great because they just say, God, you are great in your grace and your power and your identity. Very often, uh, praise psalms are good when you're sort of having a pity party. If you ever feel like you're being self-centered, just read a praise psalm. It really turns your focus from yourself onto God and who he is and what he's doing. But specifically, Psalm 19 is a song that's praising um, how God reveals himself. It's saying, God, you are wonderful in that you make yourself known to us. Scholars sort of call this part of God's self um, general revelation. He's revealing himself to us in, uh, in, in, in what he's made, that God is just saying, I'm present in what he's made. David is saying, God, you are so mighty uh, that you're unmistakable, you're undeniable in your creation. It's like if you're standing you know, at the Sistine Chapel or you're standing at some art museum looking at beautiful art and saying, okay, there's, a, there's an artist here. I don't know what his or her name is. I don't know when they, they painted this or they made this. I don't know what color socks they were wearing when they did it, but there's an artist here. 
That's his point, that first and foremost, God reveals himself in creation. And, and you can relate to that. Most of you, if you stood in some place in the, in the world and looked at this beautiful vista of mountains or a crashing ocean or a beautiful you know, Iowa sunset, there's something that sort of wells up within you. Like, okay, there's something bigger here. There's something, even if you don't know who it is or what it is or how to identify it, Something has done this. Someone has done this. That's what David is talking about. There's a creator here. Even the biggest, biggest God skeptic in the world has a really hard time standing in some of the most beautiful places of creation and saying, what a beautiful cosmic accident. You know, it's just hard to do that because there's a creator there. Romans 1.20 says this, Ever since the creation of the world, his eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things that he has made. So they are without excuse, meaning that, that people are without excuse because there's this beautiful thing that God has done. Even if we don't know the details of who he is, the Bible is saying that's God welling up within you. David does this great, um, he does great work in this psalm that, that parallels Genesis chapter 1 about God's creation. David's sort of saying, okay, we know you did it, and now we're acknowledging what you did. Look at what he does here. Uh, Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. One of the most famous lines in the Bible, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. Genesis 1, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. Psalm 19, day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. And God said, let there be light. Psalm 19, in the heavens he has set a tabernacle for the sun, for the light. He's simply saying, what you did, God, shows that you are. What you did shows that you are. And there's great poetry here. All of the Psalms you can go into so much more deeply. And if you're a junkie, just go at all the words and just figure them out. But just a couple of things about this creation Psalm that David uh, has so much fun with. Verse 2 he says, day after day, they pour forth speech. The heavens declare the glory of God. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. The word that he uses there in the Hebrew, day after day, they pour forth speech, is actually bubbles. Bubbles. You don't see the word bubbles in the Hebrew very often, but you see it in Psalms. They're bubbling forth speech. Like they talk over one another is the image there. They bubble forth speech. Verse 3 is interesting too. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Some of your translations, verse 2 says, there is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Sort of implying their voice is all over. But really, it's a bad translation. The real translation is, there is no language. Their voice is not heard. Yet their voice goes out to all the earth. There's this weird sort of irony that David is saying. They don't even need language. There's no voice. There's no language. But their voice goes out to all the earth. God is so big, he doesn't need language, but there's still a voice. Verse 5, he's pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom, like a champion runner rejoicing to run his course. There's this sort of tireless image of God is there. God's this, this runner. Have you ever, Dam to Dam was a couple of weeks ago, half marathon here in Des Moines, and if I didn't have to preach last, you know, last weekend, I would have run it. But, um, so 
have you ever watched people at the end of a marathon, at the end of Dam to Dam? Uh, there are two types of people. First of all, anybody that runs a marathon, you're a beast. I very much admire you. But there are two types of people that run marathons, right? There are those that are coming across the finish line for which the medics are there waiting, right? There are people and they're coming and they're almost dying and they've got their, they've got their water bottles attached to them and the packets of the protein goo that you runner people eat now. And so they're, they're running and they're, they collapse across the finish line and their families there, you know, haul them off to, yeah. So, and, and then there are the type of people right? Some of you are these runners. Some of you, I know you, you're these type of runners. You got all your little uniform on, your spandex, and you're running, you're running. They come across the finish line, and they're all good, right? And they wipe a little bead of perspiration off, and like, give me my medal, and then I got to go to the farmer's market, <laughs> right? And then we all see them at the farmer's market, and we're like eating our breakfast burritos, and you know, feeling really out of shape. That image of, not the breakfast burrito, but the runner who's just going, that image is what David is going here. This tireless, this tireless runner. See, the, the understanding of the world at that time was that the world was flat and that there was this dome, the firmament, like a bowl was put over the earth and that's where the sun was and, and, uh, and the sun ran a course back and forth. And so David is using that image and saying, it's like this runner, just running back and forth. Nothing is hidden from its heat. God is tireless. God is just running the course because he's saying, I'm here, I'm here. Oh, I'm here again. Oh, I'm here again. Oh, there I am again. He's saying, here I am. I'm calling out to you. I'm calling out to you. Nothing is hidden from its heat. God speaks through his work. He's in constant communication ever since the creation of the world. His eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been seen. David's really clear we're not worshiping creation. We're worshiping the creator. But nothing is hidden from this message. Why? Because God wants to be this oppressive overseer? No, because God wants more than anything for us to know him. He wants more than anything for uh, himself to be worshipped by us and to be known by us. He's calling, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. That brings us to the second half of Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They they are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. It seems like an abrupt switch, right? The first half of Psalm 19 is all about creation, creation, creation. And then all of a sudden we're talking about the law. Scholars argue, oh, there are two different Psalms here. You know, who smushed them together and why? But if you look a little bit closer, here's what David is doing. He's saying, all right, so God calls out to us in his creation. God makes clear that he's with us and that he wants us and he's for us in his creation in a general way. Well, then he just keeps going and he says, and God calls out to us in a specific way. God says, I want to be in relationship with you in a specific way. In other words, this perfect, powerful God who created the universe is the same perfect and powerful God who created a way for us to be in relationship with him. A perfect, powerful way for us to participate in that creation. See, creation can show us how uh, creative and powerful God is, but it can't show us about our sin. Creation can't tell us about the fact that there's a redeemer. It can't tell us about the fact that there is a God who stops at nothing to redeem, to reconcile our relationship with him because that's the state that we're in. We're separated from God by sin 
because of the fall in the Garden of Eden, we're separated from God for eternity and we need restoration. We need to be redeemed. We need to be restored in our relationship with God. That's what he wants. That's his mission for us. And the way he initially did that restoration was in the law, which is what David's talking about. He did that in the law, which the Bible refers to uh, as covenant or law. Whenever you see the words law in the Bible, it's referring to a lot more than just the Ten Commandments. The law, as the Old Testament or the New Testament refers to it, uh, the law is the whole set of uh, decrees and commandments in the first five books of the Bible known as the Torah or the Torah. This is the way God set out to be in relationship with his people. He gave this law to Abraham, to Moses, think Ten Commandments. But if you read surrounding the whole five books of the Bible, first five books, this is God saying, this is how we're in relationship. It's what David knew. This is how David was in relationship with God. And Psalm 19 celebrates the law. There are a bunch of Psalms that celebrate the law, but Psalm 19 is really, really clear. Why? Probably because our tendency as people, just like David's tendency as his people, was to see the law as what restricts us, or the law as that which keeps us uh, from enjoying life. But David got it. He said, no, the law is good. The law is beautiful. The law is how we can be in relationship with God. He gives us all these words for it. The law of the Lord is, back one, the law of the Lord is perfect and complete and right and pure and clean. The law is true and righteous, more desired than gold. And here's what it does. He says it's even better. The law of the Lord does this, does this, it does this. This, it revives and restores the soul, it makes wise the simple, it rejoices the heart, it enlightens the eyes, it endures forever, it warns God's people, it gives great reward. The law does these beautiful things. And even if we want to think the law restricts, the law gives life. Later in 40, uh, chapter 40, verse 8, David says this, I delight to do your will, oh my God, your law is within my heart. It's so clear that David knew that the way of living that God lays out is the way to be. But remember, the Psalms always point forward as well. David gets that. If you read verse 12 to 14, right after the section about the law, David says this, "Eh, but who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then will I be blameless, innocent of great transgression. See, David is realistic. He knows from his own experience and the world around him He knows that no matter how delightful the law is, he stinks. He knows that the law is designed for perfect relationship, to keep us uh, protected and preserved and to bless us and to keep us from getting burned. He knows that the law is something to delight in. He loves it and wants to follow it and knows it, but he still falls short. And again, David knew the law. He was standing right within it, in the community of the law, and even said, I love it, I know it, I get it. But he still falls short. Does it sound familiar? Fast forward to the New Testament, and you have the Apostle Paul. After his conversion and his relationship with Jesus Christ and the gospel started, Paul wrote most of the New Testament and planted most of the Middle Eastern church. Here was a man who knew the law, loved Jesus Christ, wanted to walk in the way of Jesus Christ. But here's what he says instead. This is Paul's reality in Romans chapter 7. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold into slavery under sin. 
I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. I can will what is right, but I can't do it. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I do. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Does it sound familiar? This is probably the mantra, if we're really honest, of all of us in the room. I know what I want to do, but I don't do what I want to do, and I do the things that I don't want to do. This verse is pretty well known if you've walked with Jesus any length of time because it describes our condition, that we know the law, but we don't do it. About a month ago, I decided to do... um, a home improvement project in my house. And I have a utility room in my house. And there's a, um, I have my furnace and my water heater in there. And um, I, I also keep my cat living in there. I don't tell people that I have cats most of the time because I have this horrible fear of becoming a cat lady. So I'm only telling you because I have to. In, the, in, the, in this utility room, I keep my cat litter. And it was, the corner was getting kind of musty and whatever. So I decided I was going to clean this all out and you know, bleach it down, dry it out. And I was going to kind of seal the corner with some concrete sealer and paint up on the drywall a little bit because it's just this unfinished room and put the cat litter there, right? So I got it all ready and I taped off a corner because I was only going to just do this one corner. And I thought, well, I have to go up behind the pipes a little bit and up on the drywall. So I'm going to get the aerosol stuff that you spray on there and kind of seal everything up. And so there I was, and I, th- I was so proud of myself. It was just afternoon project, right? So I taped off the corner, you know, shook up the aerosol can. And some of you see this coming already. And I start spraying, and I'm spraying like, oh, this is going to look really nice. And I'm spraying about two and a half feet from the pilot light on my water heater. And next thing I know, this huge ball of fire, this explosion in my face. I remember this ball of heat and light and flame coming into my face. And behold, my utility room is on fire. And so I race upstairs to get my fire extinguisher, which you should all have in your houses by the end of the day. And I raced up there. I got my, air, my, uh, my uh, fire extinguisher. I came downstairs and I, and, I, and I pulled the pin out and I put the fire out. And I called 911 and I said, there's a fire in my but it's out. It's okay. And as I'm starting to calm down a little bit, the fire was out. I realized just how very dumb this was and how very embarrassed I was going to be in about four minutes. And I started telling the lady, you know, actually, on second thought... The fire's out. It's okay, really. Like, you don't have to tell them nothing. Don't, no, don't send the trucks. I don't, like, the siren, tell them, please, like, just maybe send one guy to come and make sure the house isn't on fire anymore. It's really okay. Because I'm realizing I'm just dumb. Because I know there's a pilot light on the water heater, right? You know it's under there, even though you can't see it. I know this. And I know that you don't spray aerosol near an open flame. I know these things. Mm-mm. That's about how they went. So I'm just, I'm so embarrassed. And I was telling her, just no siren, just don't, don't send the whole thing. God bless the West Des Moines Fire Department. Seven minutes and 13 seconds later, I have two ladder trucks, three police officers, the fire chief, and the medical people because I told them I had burned my hand. And my neighbors, half of whom go to Hope, are all standing at their door like, oh, what does money do? It's burning down the house. And so they come in, and, and I'm in the utility room trying to clean up and make it look like I'm not a complete idiot. And I come out to my living room, and there are four firefighters, full garb, with their helmets and their axes, waiting to fell me to lead them to the fire. I was so embarrassed, and they were so nice, and they told me they had to come because they'd call it in. And I understood, and they're checking things out. And I was telling them, you know, I know better. I really do, trying to convince them that I really did know better. And one of the firefighters was very nice to me. He said, but you know what? After the fire started, you did everything right. And I said, well, that's very comforting. Thank you. So I'm in the room explaining to them what had happened, right? And showing them the water heater there with the, you know, label on it that says, be careful. And, and, and I'm showing, and he, so he has to call in on the radio 
and tell, you know, the radio people what had happened. And he's trying to be so nice to me. Uh, you know, occupant was uh, painting in the uh, utility room. And I said, just tell them. Just tell them that I was standing two feet from a gigantic red warning label that shows a man bursting into flames. Just tell them. Because there, on the water heater, is a label this big. There's one on your water heater, too. And it shows a man holding a can of gas, standing next to the water heater, and he's burning. He's in flames. And I tell you what, I was, I was this close to the label. I was likely reading the label as I was spray painting the floor. And that's what we do with the law. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. That's exactly what we do with the law. We can be in Christian community, whether you're a Christian or not. This is what Paul is saying. We can know the law. We can delight in the law. We can say, God, we know that your boundaries and your warnings are good for us, that they give us life. And yet we move forward and we break our world and we hurt others and we devastate God's desire for us. And David knew that who can discern his errors forgive my hidden faults keep your servant also from willful sins may they not rule over me then will i be blameless innocent of great transgression but here's the difference between david and paul is that david was longing for a savior paul knew that one had come here's what paul says if you continue in chapter 7 The previous verse that we read, who will rescue me from this body of death? Next sentence, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. See, for David, salvation meant a system of of laws and sacrifices. For Paul, for us, Jesus is our salvation not because he abolished the law he was clear about that he didn't come to abolish the law but to fulfill it that one's up on the screen there you could copy that down because jesus is very clear he has not come to abolish the law next screen but to fulfill it jesus says oh there's still a way there's a way and i'm it the way is still here And I'm it. Too often we think that salvation is just this ticket to heaven at the end. Or maybe the people that you're reaching out to and telling about what it means to be in Christian community have this idea in their head that too often salvation is a ticket to heaven when we die. And that following Jesus is just the nice thing churchy people do until salvation. Until we die. Or until Jesus comes back. Or however you want to talk about it. But that's so not what Jesus says. He says, following me is the way and the way is salvation. Following Jesus, following Jesus' way is salvation. Jesus takes the law of the Old Testament and jacks it up a few notches and says, here's how to live. Here's what following me is about. Honor your parents. Don't quarrel. Give away what you have. Experience freedom. Be healed Love one another, serve one another, turn the other cheek. The last shall be first. All of Jesus' teaching about the way, he's very clear. If you don't like following me, you don't like salvation. If you don't want me, you don't want salvation. You can't want salvation and not want what comes along with it. I was at Panera the other day and there was a lady in front of me in line. And you know how at Panera you get like a free side, like, you know, an apple or a whole grain baguette or chips, right? So you go, and, and I was behind this lady and she ordered and then the guy behind the counter said well what would you like for your side she's like oh i don't want a side he's like well it comes with a side and she's like 
I don't want a side. And he said, but, um, but it's free. She goes, well, I don't want a side. He goes, but it comes, it comes with it. What should I put on there? She goes, I don't want a side. And that's too often what we do. Jesus says, follow me, follow me. And follow me means more than just this intellectual ascent to something or this ticket to heaven when we die. He says, follow me means a new life. And it comes with a side of restoration and service to others and, and freedom and a better relationships with people and, and freedom from worship of ourself. It just, it, that's part of it. That is salvation. So where are you in your life saying that you desire salvation but yet rejecting the gifts or the work that comes along with it. Not the work that earns salvation, but the work of following Jesus, the way of following Jesus. Where is God offering you a new way, a way that's sweeter than honeycomb or purer than gold? And you're saying, no, that's all right, thanks. I'm fine with, you know, with my patterns and my self-centeredness and my, and my angers and my addictions and my no sense of moral foundation of right or wrong or my addictions and my pain and my mistrust. But thanks for the ticket to heaven when I die. Too often we do that and we live like Jesus promises are only redeemable upon death or it'll be like that someday. So in the meantime, what do we do? Even as Christians, we sort of cobble together our own creation. We put together our own way. And it may have some smatterings of Christian way, of following Jesus' way, But since we're convinced that it's really going to come to fruition later, we put that together with a bunch of other pieces of our own reality, our own creation instead, and make this sort of false world that's really pretty rickety. A few weeks ago, I was on vacation in Florida, and near the end of the week, I also had a chance to go to Epcot Center, which is part of Disney World, the happiest place on earth, right? If you don't know Epcot Center, it's one of the parks, and the way that Epcot is set up, it's, there's a big lake in the middle, and there are kind of spokes or, or streets that go out from it, and each of the streets is... Um, is is a different it represents a different country in the world and so you walk around and you go down into and you're in china land or mexico land or morocco land and i mean this is disney so they go all out right all the shops and the restaurants there are people in costume and and the smells and the sights and the food and everything is as if you're in the country and i've been in some of these countries i mean it's pretty tricked out i mean they really make it real so it's this great beautiful day and it's disney world right so everybody's happy and there's no garbage on the floor and the sun is shining and you know you picture little bluebirds you know everything is just kind of great this little world that's created so we're going around and we come out of i think it was morocco land and we're walking down the sidewalk and the crowd of people coming towards us it looks kind of funny and they're looking behind us and pointing at the sky so we turn around and we look and there's this gigantic terrifying wall of black clouds coming and just huge and you can already feel there's this huge storm coming it's going to hit you know any minute and the front you could feel the cold air starting to come and you know you look at people and they the reality is hitting them and they're grabbing their children and you know running to take cover and putting on their you know, Mickey Mouse ponchos as if that's going to save them and they you run in so we go into United Kingdom land i think it was and there's this kind of archway and they were packed in there with you know 493 other people and you know waiting for the storm to hit and sure enough it dumped rain this horrible storm comes through for like an hour and everybody's stuck and i was sitting in a place where you could see this door that goes back into backstage epcot land and i tell you what these are not the happiest people on earth when it's raining the staff people were coming back you know trying to smile at everybody but the minute they got through that door like "Eh, rain i got my camera wet and my ice cream cones are soggy and it was just not a happy place so pretty soon the rain let up and we had to keep going but 
it's, you know, the, the day was kind of over. I mean, rain is hard to deal with it at Epcot Center. So we thought, well, okay, what's going to cheer us up? And I thought, well, Canada Land. We've got to go to Canada Land. What's closer to Minnesota than Canada Land? So we duck into Canada, and, uh, but it just, uh, things were over. Because one of the buildings was closed down, and they didn't have any hockey stuff from Minnesota. It was only, you know, Florida and Canada for some reason. And then we walked up, and there were artificial rocks and artificial trees, and, which probably looked great in the sun. And then there's this big construction area that says, caution, keep off, because there's a big crack in the, in the, in the, in the stones. And pretty much the illusion of this beautiful, perfect world was over because it's not the happiest place on earth with, you know, Canada's cracking off into France land. And you go out to the car and things are melted in the back seat. We can try to cobble together our own way, our own creation in our lives, and we do. But it's not going to last. We can try to manufacture our own, our own world we can try to deny that God's way is not the way of life, but it is. It is. And Psalm 19 makes it really clear that the truth of God is built into the fabric of creation. And the way of God is clear, and he wants it for us more than anything. And his call to us is his way. Later, if you fast forward a hundred psalms in Psalm 119, this is... What David says, put false ways far from me and graciously teach me your law. I cling to your decrees, O God. Let me not be put to shame. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Keep in mind, this is David who lived a very, very bad life. He was a very bad man in a lot of places in his life. God's law would have kept David from doing the things that he did, and he recognized it. He said, God, I can make my own way but I still delight in your law. It gives me life. Show me your commandments. Where are you so deep in your own reality that you don't hear or you aren't willing to hear God calling out to you and saying, I have a way. I'm in charge. I've got it. And I even forgive you when you blow it. David has words for that too. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. If you know any verse from Psalm 19, know that one. God, just make, make my words and my heart be acceptable to you because you're my rock and my redeemer. And that's what he's concluding with is a statement of faith. After all of this, he concludes with, you are my rock and my redeemer. What is he saying there? He's saying this, God, I'll be moved and the world may be moved, but you will not be moved. You are my rock and my redeemer. You choose me. You save me. You've come to us because you're the God of covenant. And David knew a new covenant was coming. When you celebrate communion here at City Branch, I think you had communion last week here, the whole new covenant is what Jesus said he's come to do. And David knew that. He said, God, you have a way for me, and I cling to it. You're my rock and my redeemer.